2: I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you news from the front line as fighting continues around Bakhmut. And we're live in Vilnius with all the latest updates from the NATO summit. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable Hardships to finally reward you with
3: victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield to win the war. Nobody's going to break us.
1: We're strong. We're Ukrainians.
2: Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 11th of July. One year and 137 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our assistant comment editor Francis Dernley, Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes, and senior foreign correspondent Roland Oliphant. I started by asking Francis for the latest updates from Ukraine.
0: Well, thanks, David. The NATO summit has only just begun and already we've seen some very significant announcements, not least about Sweden's application to join the alliance and on security guarantees for Ukraine. But Joe and Roland will cover those imminently. First, as you say to the battlefield, Ukrainian forces said they have captured high ground to the south of Bakhmut, giving them a vital advantage in the renewed battle for the destroyed city. The claim comes as Ukrainian officials try to speed up their counteroffensive to show progress ahead of NATO's annual summit. Hanna Malia, Ukraine's deputy defense minister, said the Ukrainian soldiers have established fire control of the entrances and exits of Bakhmut. Quote During the process of advancing, our troops took control of key commanding heights around the settlement. For reasons, previously discussed on the podcast, Bakhmut has obviously taken on noteworthy symbolic significance in recent months, though largely destroyed in an eight-month siege by Wagner. The Kremlin Mercy Group claimed to have destroyed it in May and then withdrew, leaving the Russian military little time to build defence and dig trenches. It seems Ukraine believes there is an opportunity to envelop the city, thus rendering its seizure redundant Russian military bloggers, generally considered to be better informed than many mainstream Russian media outlets, have confirmed that there was fierce fighting around the heights yesterday, although said it has not yet fallen to the Ukrainians. The hill rises to around 200 metres, making it an important tactical site for controlling Bakhmut, which is about five miles to the north. I saw one person describe it as Bakhmut's little round top, which is one for our American listeners. It's worth saying that the Ukrainian general staff reported that Ukrainian forces have liberated four square kilometres of territory in the Bakhmut direction over the past week, and a total of 24 square kilometres since starting counteroffensive operations in the Bakhmut direction, which likely began, of course, around early June. Elsewhere on the front, Ukrainian forces claim to have conducted counteroffensive operations on at least three sectors on July 10th, Ukrainian military officials stated that troops continued offensive actions in Bakhmut, Berdyansk and Melitopol. The Ukrainian general staff also reported the Ukrainian troops advanced up to one kilometre in the Melitopol direction and a total of 8.6 kilometres since Ukrainian troops initiated operations in those directions. In total, therefore, Ukraine claims to have recaptured 169 square kilometres on the southern front and 24 square kilometres around Bakhmut since the counteroffensive began. According to the Institute for the Study of War, in five weeks, Ukrainian forces have liberated nearly the same amounts of territory the Russian forces captured in over six months. But the Russian operations continue. So Russia overnight launched an airstrike on Kyiv just hours before the NATO summit. Air raid alerts blasted over the capital for an hour and longer in other parts of Ukraine's east. The Ukrainian military has said its air defence systems shot down the Iranian-made Shahid drones before they reached their targets. We've not been able to independently verify that. Russian forces also sent waves of drones to attack a grain terminal in Odessa. That's according to the region's governor, Two terminals caught fire after two of the drones crashed into a building but are said to have been extinguished without critical damage or casualties. Now turning to Russia's domestic space, two interesting developments in the past 24 hours. The plot thickens over the former head of the Wagner group. So the Kremlin have claimed, claimed, I emphasize that word, that Putin held a secret meeting with Yegevni Prigozhin five days after the Wagner chiefs failed mutiny, despite promising to punish him over the rebellion. The June 29th talks lasted supposedly three hours and involved nearly three dozen people, including Prigozhin and Wagner unit commanders. The Kremlin said that Putin had called the meeting to hear firsthand why the group had rebelled five days earlier. Dmitry Peskov, Putin's spokesman, has said... Putin listened to the explanations of the commanders and offered them further options for employment and combat options. This is extraordinary if true, but it would explain the lack of punishment we've seen so far and Prigozhin's erratic travel schedule. Many would interpret this as a sign of weakness. After all, Putin has threatened to had threatened harsh punishment of Wagner's leaders when the rebellion broke out, and later accused its organizers of. Betraying the country and its people. One academic, Konstantin Sonin, professor of public policy at the University of Chicago, has said that Putin's apparent reproachment with his former ally showed him to be dysfunctional, and goes further and said that the reemergence since the rebellion of Gen Gorasimov in a video on Monday made the lead the Russian leader look like a dictator in trouble who can't fire his incompetent subordinates. I echo this if the reports are true. Putin may be gradually nullifying the threat rather than striking swiftly. A totally rudderless Wagner has deep implications for Russia's foreign influence abroad. NATO has not seen any movement of Wagner fighters to Belarus, suggesting they may still be in play for deployment. Far better arguably for Putin to befriend Prigozhin while he's still popular, then erode his significance before erasing him from the scene when his power has weakened sufficiently and replacements can be found. But that's enough Machiavelli. Lastly, staying with Russia, a Russian naval captain has, who well, he commanded a submarine that allegedly fired on a Ukrainian city. He's been shot dead on his morning run. So Stanislav Rzevsky was found with four bullets in his back near a sport complex in Krasnodar, southern Russia. According to reports, Russian media said that the assassin had escaped and that a murder investigation has been launched. This captain is 42 in the Russian Navy and was working as the deputy head of the Krasnodar region's mobilisation department. Ukrainian media said that he commanded a submarine in the Black Sea last year that had fired missiles in western Ukraine some of which killed 28 people in a single strike. So that's where we are militarily, David. I should add that on the essential question of Western supplies to Ukraine, new data on military aid highlights a significant change in the balance of heavy weapons on the nation's battlefields after more than 16 months of war, with Ukraine now approaching parity with Russia in several key areas, not least tanks. An update of the Ukraine support tracker database maintained by Germany's Kiel Institute for the World Economy has said Kiev's backers had delivered 471 new tanks since the start of the war, with a further 286 still to arrive, uh, even as the rate of new pledges has slowed. Bloomberg, I should say, have written a piece on this with graphs and graphics, which is quite interesting. Now, on a slightly separate note, the Australian government has also announced it will send Royal Australian Air Force surveillance equipment to Germany and aircraft to help monitor and protect the flow of military and humanitarian aid into the country. Likewise, Canada has pledged to more than double its NATO deployment in Latvia, with up to 1,200 more troops being sent to the country to resist Russian aggression. And that coordination across Western powers remains strategically significant and continues to rumble on in the background. But ultimately, David, all eyes are on Vilnius this week, so I'll gladly hand over to Joe and Roland. Thank you very much, Francis. Well, let's go to
2: Joe Barnes, our Brussels correspondent who's on the ground in Vilnius at the NATO summit. Joe, can you tell us a little bit about the atmosphere there and what are the stories that you've been covering that have come out today?
1: Hi, folks. Um, Atmosphere, really interesting. It's uh, uh, sort of mixed feelings. You've got a lot of travelling Ukrainian journalists who are slightly despondent, the fact that Ukraine doesn't look like it's going to get anywhere closer to membership of NATO. But then you have Lithuania has put on a real show. They've plastered their buses with messages saying, while you wait for this bus, Ukraine waits for NATO membership. While you wait for this bus, Ukraine waits for F-16s. There's the yellow and blue of Ukraine's actual flag is uh, adorned everywhere across the streets. And it's sunny, good weather. So yeah, no, it's the atmosphere is great. Slightly less serious nuggets of information I've picked up on my travels here. Uh, before we get into the real news, is uh, one of the security measures that's in place, there's lots of Patriot systems floating around, there's a uh, NATO spy plane in the sky, helicopters flashing, but one of the more novel ideas that police and journalists have come up with, they've been asking people to stop listening to music or singing in their cars, so that make sure they're alert uh, to the uh, very motorcade that are whizzing around uh, so they're not to get caught up in the uh, traffic of the beast uh, motorcade with President Biden also. so. Um, I think big news uh, last night for NATO itself was the fact that Turkey has said it will ratify Sweden's accession protocol and bring in Sweden to make it a 32-member alliance. That's basically been a year in the making. So President Erdogan in Madrid last year said he would allow Finland and Sweden to join. Finland subsequently joined on its own while Sweden's membership bid was held up by basically Turkey saying, you're not doing enough to tackle Islamic terror. And that their real concern is there are Kurdish militants, members of the PKK, which is a terrorist organisation as deemed by the Turks, by the US and by various countries in the EU. And Turkey constantly basically argued that they weren't doing, and so Sweden wasn't doing enough to counter this threat, which it had promised to crack down on as part of its joining. So it's been a a real long road for Sweden membership, but actually now it actually... Gives NATO another really top notch military. You only have to look at sort of the equipment it has, the Archer self propelled howitzers, which have been highly effective in Ukraine, uh, the Gripen fighter jet. And it's also like, geographically really important uh, to the extent that Sweden's position in the Baltic now gives NATO the ability to deny Russia access to the body of water in the event of a war. We knew it was going to happen. Lots of positive noises ahead of the meeting. But President Erdogan, or the Turkish leader, is always a sort of a real showman his Foreign Service are Masters of Diplomacy and basically squeezing out concessions from their allies when allies want something from Turkey. So there were late-night talks. I think they ended around 9 o'clock uh, with this kind of positive message from Jens Stoltenberg, NATO Secretary-General. A picture of Erdogan, uh, the Swedish Prime Minister, and Stoltenberg holding hands and saying, look, we've reached a story moment. Sweden's going to join NATO. We don't know exactly what Turkey has got, but we can start painting a picture. Earlier in the day, Erdogan, uh, yesterday, Monday, had said that he wanted Sweden and EU countries to back a renewal of Turkey's accession talks to join the EU. And then he had also muted, and this was a a long sort of suggestion, that he wanted F-16s from the U.S., So he had held talks with Joe Biden beforehand. He held talks with Charles Michel, the European Council's president. And no doubt Erdogan thinks he's extracted enough concessions from his NATO and EU allies uh, there to basically make it worth his while to allow Sweden in. That's to be seen. And then I think the other story is quite interesting at the moment. uh, One thing that we've been looking at very closely is the possibility of Ukraine being admitted into NATO and becoming a member. As it stands, we're heading into a situation where NATO allies are basically going to renew a statement they made in 2008, saying one day NATO will be a member. And they're still working on the communique that they're going to issue to NATO leaders after the summit. But the language as we understand it is Ukraine is going to be extended an invitation where NATO allies agree and the conditions have been met. Unsurprisingly, uh, President Zelensky has reacted and called the decision unprecedented and absurd. He had previously, before the summit, said he wouldn't bother turning up, even though he's been invited and, and he will travel if Ukraine wasn't to give membership. But to, give, to read his full quote, he said, it's unprecedented and absurd when time frame is not set neither for the invitation nor Ukraine membership, while at the same time vague wording about conditions is added, even for inviting Ukraine. It seems there is no readiness, neither to invite Ukraine to NATO, nor to make it a member of the alliance. So I do think Selen, he really did know that he wasn't heading for membership but he is constantly like a shark circling around his Western allies making waiting to pick off little things whether it be tanks, aircraft, NATO membership or just security guarantees which we'll move on to next. So the one big thing that we're going to its going to be announced on the sidelines of NATO it's not a NATO uh, kind of plan per se but the UK the United States France and Germany are going to commit to long term plans to arm key to defend itself from Russian aggression. They have been billed as Israeli-style security guarantees because they're based on loosely on the kind of legally binding memorandum of understanding that Israel and the US have for bolstering Israel's security. So what it includes is basically let's continue the status quo. It will be a US EU countries will continue to commit over a certain period of time to keep sending Ukraine weapons to help continue training its forces and keep giving Uh, supplying intelligence and various other assistance. It's seen as, rather than a utmost guarantee of NATO's Article 5, which is its mutual defence clause, basically means if one country is attacked, it can request other NATO allies to come to its assistance. Uh, It obviously is very short of that. What it is seen as a stepping stone to help Ukraine become a country with a military of NATO standards. So when the time is right, when the war is over, NATO allies can feel comfortable letting Ukraine in. So again, it's designed to sort of make sure President Zelensky comes to feel this and doesn't leave empty-handed. But it does obviously stop short of the, what he's really looking for, and that's NATO membership at this stage. Thank you very much, Joe, for running us through all of
2: that. Roland, can I go to you? It's clear that Ukraine hasn't got what it wanted from this summit. Could you tell us why not maybe break through some of the diplomatic language surrounding this who stood in Ukraine's way and why
3: the countries that are basically being blamed by everybody else including on background by other officials from other countries are the United States and Germany the, the question of why I mean <laughs> who knows I just spoke to Sam Green formerly of King's College London who's um, a, a great expert on Russian events and also America's relationships in that part of the world his feeling is is not the American reluctance is not because they don't want Ukraine to join NATO. But there are certain other considerations at play. One is that what America says sets the the pace and velocity of what everybody else does. And if America's actually not getting involved in this is a bit behind the crowd, it's kind of easier for other members of the alliance to consolidate around the idea than if the United States seemed to be pushing everybody into it. But I think the real bottom line is the Americans are nervous about getting dragged into an Article Five commitment with Ukraine any time in the foreseeable future, for obvious reasons. Do they want to put boots on the ground and get involved in the war with Russia? No, obviously not. I mean, the Ukrainian retort to that. I had a long conversation with Dmitry Kuleba, the foreign minister, a couple of weeks ago. And he was very clear, look, we're not asking to join NATO before the end of this war. No one's going to let us in. We completely understand why. We're going to win this war ourselves with Western help, but not as part of NATO. But look... Article 5 guarantees the protection of NATO is the only thing that is going to guarantee the peace. The only way to deter Russia from starting another war in future is us being in NATO. And the Russians have to understand that we're going to do this because otherwise they're going to be encouraged, they're going to see Western disunity and so on. I'm not sure the Americans or the Germans or others who are a bit suspicious about this or a bit leery about this idea really see things in those kinds of black and white terms. I think they feel that, okay, well, how, how is the war going to end? We don't know how the war is going to work. What, what if the war ends with a ceasefire of some sort? Well, is that going to hold? So if Ukraine is given a firm timetable, and maybe it's something to do with cessation of hostilities, and they come to NATO, there's an Article 5 commitment, and then suddenly the war restarts somehow, is everybody obliged to, to come to Ukraine's defense and fight Russia? As I say, and that's not going to make anybody in Kiev particularly happy. President Zelensky's comment on Twitter is very forthright. And to be fair, what's refreshing about talking to the Ukrainians about this, to be absolutely honest, is how very willing they are to call a spade a spade, in a way. One of the frustrations in my job with talking to diplomats, with apologies to any diplomats listening, is that it's a trade that swims in ambiguity. It's viewed as a sign of professionalism to be able to talk without actually committing to anything or actually saying anything concrete. That You talk to the Ukrainians and they say, we're, we're fed up with that, basically. One thing uh, Dmitry Kolobov said to me was that we cannot have another 2008. We're basically given a false promise and we are not going to accept a repeat of 2008. We're not going to accept something that falls short of a concrete, kind of specific sign of progress towards us joining. In 2008, we went along with it. The Ukrainians got this open-ended promise. One day, Ukraine and Georgia will join NATO No membership action plan, no timetable, and no work followed up on that to move that process along after that statement was made. And yet everybody was happy to sing from that diplomatic song sheet. You know, it's an emperor's new clothes thing. Everyone's saying like, yes, of course. One day Ukraine will be in NATO." nothing was happening. They're they're not happy to go along with that. And they're very clear that they're not going to pretend that everything's okay if they get something they consider to be similar, which seems to be what's happening I mean, on the other hand, Mr. Kaleba did say yesterday that NATO have agreed, or NATO clouds have agreed to drop the requirement for the membership action plan. Now, that is symbolically quite important, because basically the membership action plan is it's what you're meant to do to get into NATO as your hazing process, it, and it includes undefined things about democracy and government and rule of law, as well as is your military good enough to be in NATO and things like this, and... It can take years. It's completely open ended. I think North Macedonia was doing it for twenty years or something. Um, So skipping it, as Finland and Sweden were allowed to do, you know, that could actually accelerate your membership process by from decades to a few months if if you really wanted to. But it doesn't literally guarantee that's going to happen. On the other hand, that was I understand that was a Ukrainian's minimum request. They felt that dropping the map requirement would be the least that NATO could do to say that, offer a sign that they're serious about Ukrainian membership in future. There was definitely a feeling in Kiev that they felt that NATO could go further. They were very keen on some wording, using the word invitation, for example, if not a specific date or timetable. They were quite keen on that. The German tabloid Bild published a report, I think yesterday, they said they'd seen some, Russian, some German diplomatic documents that basically said Germany was going to block any kind of mention of the word invitation Um, so it's not a surprise to me that they're going to be disappointed uh, on that score but I think Joe's basically summed up quite well I think really it's a kind of when they talk about Israeli commitments it is a preservation of the status quo we'll keep giving you weapons we'll keep giving you money but we're not gonna make any concrete kind of commitment right now towards letting you into NATO.
2: Thanks, Roland. Can I go back to Joe in Vilnius? Would you like to add to that at all? And how do you find as a journalist dealing with the sort of the ambiguity of, of listening to diplomats and, and what they
1: say? On the ambiguity of diplomatic language, it, It's actually incredible. You can you can uh, I've sat through countless briefings ahead of this NATO summit in the last kind of few months, people sort of prepare their lines to take. And you listen back to the recordings that you make and like, read through your notes and you've got well, I say maybe an hour and a half worth sort of language to cipher through and then you realise actually what they've done is they've spoken for an hour and a half and not said anything or uh, given you any news at all. But yeah, that's, I guess that's naturally one of the challenges that we all face as journalists and especially when you're working on uh big multilateral organizations like the EU, like NATO, G seven, G twenty, when where you basically have to please T plus countries and often the best way of doing that is by saying nothing. Um, but then interesting the w Roland was speaking about the membership action plan that has been taken away. On one school at right. you can you take it away and it hopefully makes membership quicker. But on the other hand, if you look at the reason why the US and Germany wanted to take it off the table, it's very different. So, I mean, they wanted to take it taken off the table because once a country is given map status, it is a guaranteed invite. You are going to join NATO. So that would then go beyond when... when has run to Germany being the time to block him, so any, any talk of an invitation at this summit, any talk of membership so if they were to say we insist on that uh, and following the formal process, that would mean we back Ukraine to join we we want that invitation basically put in play, so that's a really interesting kind of way of looking at how one thing well when, when we speak about ambiguity, we speak about that, it could mean one thing but it could also mean two, it means a shortened process but it also means a process that is actually ukraine joining and that's one of the reasons why it would appear that was taken off the table uh, but i'll stop there and hand over to david again
2: thanks joe can i go to francis i know you've got some thoughts about some of the news coming out of
0: the nato summit thanks i think whilst much of the attention will be on security guarantees to ukraine and rightly so for my part i believe the news about sweden joining nato at this juncture is on a parity in terms of significance if not greater It is worth reiterating that Russia claims to have started this war due to NATO's expansion. Yet as a consequence of its actions, the alliance has grown to include two new members, which bring significant military power to bear as a deterrent. To Joe's point, Sweden has a military of around 15,000 full-time personnel and 10,000 in reserve. But despite their small size, its armed forces are heavily armed, with at least 531 main battle tanks and 96 aircraft fighters and five submarines. In the event of a confrontation with Russia, NATO would likewise now have access to dozens more air and naval bases across Scandinavia and the Baltic Sea. The timing also matters. Another blow to the idea that Russia is winning this war in terms of grand strategy, sending a signal to its elites and to the wider world who are watching all this. The fact that it's Turkey, which has enabled this, will also sting. Erdogan plays both sides depending on where momentum lies, and clearly he's made a calculation he has more to gain from the West at this moment. A significant, I think a significant signal of the way that power is shifting. But to the points already discussed, it's not all roses. We shouldn't underestimate the Ukrainian frustration and not being set a timetable to join the alliance. Zelensky has gone further and has said that the reluctance shown by member states allows Russia to continue its terror. He said this means that a window of opportunity is being left to bargain Ukraine's membership in NATO in negotiations with Russia. And for Russia, that means motivation to continue its terror. Uncertainty is weakness and I will openly discuss this at the summit. Putting my view forward, I share his sentiments, but to Dom's point yesterday, this might also be a shrewd strategy by Kyiv to leverage their unhappiness in order to get greater commitments in other areas. It was always unlikely that they would get NATO membership whilst at war. It will be interesting to see what else they get, given that we're only in the opening hours of the summit. No doubt there will be something major announced at the end of tomorrow, which will be designed to steal the headlines and show the direction of travel, which is ultimately some kind of Ukrainian victory. Although, as we've talked about in the past, exactly what that Ukrainian victory will look like will continue to depend on the long-term support of the countries we see here, and I did think it was noteworthy yesterday that Rishi Sunak underlined this point that if Moscow's strategy is to delay and wait for Western interest to wane, that he is sorely mistaken. Clearly, there is a strategy here that within Europe, that dep- regardless of what happens in the United States, that they will continue to provide Kyiv with fundamental support. But because of those weaknesses and those wobbles within elements of the alliance and because of the huge significance that America has in terms of its support, we've still got a long way to go here. And this is the challenge for Ukraine is keeping the political will on their side the longer this war goes on. And it's there at the moment. And I think there's every reason to be optimistic. But for as long as there is uncertainty on that question, Putin will continue to push this, which is why, of course, Ukraine Schneef believes that it is absolutely vital that it ends this war on the battlefield because if it relies on the political sphere I think it feels there are more cracks there than perhaps will be the appearance of the summit this week.
2: Thank you very much Francis. Just one more uh, question from me to Joe on the NATO summit. Joe you you were doing a lot of reporting last week and this week on the race to be uh, the next NATO Secretary General. Could you just bring us up to date there? Um, Have we heard anything new? No.
1: Basically, what has happened is uh, Jens Stoltenberg has had his confirmation that he will have his period extended until October 2024. It's still very much in play because they will have to make a decision at that time. I don't think they can extend again, which I think for, me, for the fourth or four, fifth time, off the top of my head I can't remember. Obviously, Mark Rutte, stepping down as Dutch Prime Minister and suggesting he's going to quit politics, brings a new name, a potential European candidate, someone with a Prime Ministerial experience. He's been a Ukraine hardliner, a hawk, some would describe him as. So there's another name in play alongside von der Leyen. Potentially does Mark Brittur end up in a in the European Commission freeing up von der Leyen to come and work for NATO. We don't we don't know. There's still that's discussions that we'll probably look forward to ahead of a summit next year to celebrate NATO's seventy-fifth anniversary, and that will likely be the point where Stoltenberg steps down after being basically handed the reins to guide the alliance to that major point in its history. Thank you
2: very much, Joe. Roland, can we move away from the NATO summit and talk about something else? Francis mentioned in his updates this claim from the Kremlin that Putin had held a secret meeting with Yevgeny Prigozhin five days after the Wagner chief's failed mutiny. This has sparked quite a lot of speculation, I think, in the press, some of which is interesting and and fruitful, some of which might not be. Could you just give your take on some of the after effects and the news we're hearing around the
3: fallout from the failed mutiny? I think none of the speculation is of any use, David. I think you might as well. I'll tell you what, this is what you should do, readers. If you've got a Russian dictionary at home, um, go to it, open it at a random page, pick a word, transliterate that word into Latin letters, write it in italics, put a comma after it, and then write down a dictionary definition. And then you can go down the pub and you can say, to understand uh, what's happening with Yevgeny Prigozhin and Vladimir Putin, you have to understand the Russian concept of X read out the definition and say, ah, but of course it can't really be translated. This is a fundamentally Russian thing and you can hold court at the pub for as long as you like and you will have as much insight into what is really going on there as anybody else. That's what I think about it. Any word, pick any word. Um, (laughs) I'm not even joking about that, to be honest. We don't know if the meeting even took place. It is a claim by, by Peskov. Did it, didn't it? Why would it happen? Why wouldn't it happen? The truth is, know very little about the kind of relationships, the internal personal relationships that underpin all this. And is Prigozhin still alive? Why wasn't he able to go back to Belarus? Why was he allowed to come back and get stuff? Does he have kompromat? Sorry to, to put a Russian word in italics. Compromising material. It's not a uniquely Russian concept. It is translatable. Some people were talking at the time of the march that the Wagner got close to uh, Voronezh-45, this base which supposedly holds nuclear weapons. And now Budanov, the head of the Ukrainian military intelligence, has told Reuters that, well, they actually, Wagner Fighters got there, but they couldn't get into the storage facility and they didn't actually get hold of a bomb. And then somebody else has told Reuters. This is an interesting report. You should look uh, that up, actually. That's a bit of reporting I respect. Came out yesterday. They've got a Russian source, supposedly close to the Kremlin, who confirmed parts of that story and said, listen, that was when the Americans started really getting nervous and calling us up and saying, what the hell is going on? So maybe that's got something to do with it. I wouldn't at this point buy the idea that uh, Evgeny Prigozhin got hold of a nuclear bomb and is is holding Putin hostage or something like that. I think it, if if you want to ask me in my kind of beard stroking, quote unquote Russianist man in the pub kind of opinion, there's uh, a <laughs> okay. Let let me let let me do the Russian concept of something. <laughs> much as I bog anyone who uses the word maskarovka. All right, in Russian you can there's a word which is sway which means your own one's own and it, he's kind of used as, as a possessive pronoun to refer to something that is yours on second reference in the sentence but you can also use it to describe people who are like your people right you know like your family or something and they're ours you know you, you get it like they're you know they're, they're the, the right sort of chap in a way and i feel like one of the explanations is for for Yevgeny Prigozhin not getting a bullet in the head and chucked out of the window straight away, perhaps, why were well, one kind of the explanations for them? Finding a truce or some kind of deal at the end of that ridiculous kind of 12, 24 hours a few Saturdays ago is simply that. These are people who know each other very, very well and they're not necessarily enemies. And there's a way of understanding. Do you remember the video at the beginning of the coup where Prigozhin is sitting on a bench with Yunus Bekyov-Kurov, the deputy defense minister, who's listening to him grumble? And they don't look like anything other than like a couple of late middle-aged men drinking a cider outside their garage where one of them's whinging about his wife and the other one's going, yeah, man, I know what you're talking about. I think part of it probably simply boils down to that. This is not, in a way, it's not an assault from the outside. And then then there's a way of having an understanding and as to whether or not it weakens Putin, whether he's mortally wounded below and, and, and is now sinking, whether... Uh, Prigozhin was backed by elements within the FSB who were trying to oust Mr. Putin. Whether or not the old man is completely back in control, and Yevgeny Prigozhin has been thrown in prison or something—well, you, you could choose which other scenario you want to uh, you want to speculate on.
2: Thank you very much, Roland. Are there
1: any other updates from Francis or Joe before we go to our final thoughts? Well, two bits of information. good uh, track. so uh, Germany has. Con- decided it's going to send another 700 million euros worth of military equipment to Ukraine, including weapon one, eight five tanks and Marder fighting vehicles. But I think the most stark and it's this kind of massive themacing conversion from the French. They've announced that they will today send their version of the Storm Channel the scout to Ukraine and it kind of completes Emmanuel Macron's kind of conversion from someone who was not willing to upset Russia and didn't want to humiliate Vladimir Putin and are now arming Ukraine with... One of its well, it's probably its longest-ranged weapon from a Western ally, and one that we believe is doing good work after being donated by the Brits. So uh, that's uh, two little nuggets of information I excluded earlier. Thank you very much, Joe. We'll come back to you. So, Francis Durnley, do you want to
3: start?
0: Sure. Well, one just a quick one for me today. Turkey's decision to unblock Sweden's entry was arguably an essay in brinkmanship. After our broadcast. Yesterday, Erdogan made statements that granting the military may be predicated on Turkey becoming a member of the European Union, something years away, if it ever happens. Evidently, this was a move designed to panic the key brokers within NATO, as within hours they reach an agreement which I imagine gave Turkey other things that it wanted in exchange, which the West had previously been reluctant to grant. We don't yet know the details of what those were but it showed how going with big asks can pay off as the watered down version one gets is better than one what, what, what you would have got if you'd asked for that it's Turkey's playbook and it may be one that Ukraine has adopted too and we'll see that over the coming days Thank you Francis. Joe Barnes in
1: Vilnius. Thank you David um, I'll kind of end my Closing thoughts going back to these long-term security guarantees. We expect they're going to be announced tomorrow as part of sort of the Ukraine NATO uh, council. It will be have the backing of the G seven. We had backing of from the EU uh, last month for their European Council Summit. And I presume that NATO will include some sort of language in their communique as okay, a, a head nod uh, to the kind of agreement that's been formed. But what's interesting there is one of the debates and I was thinking of Kaya Kalas the Estonian prime minister, and she was saying, uh, we know Ukraine is winning this war. And Me and a few other journalists were like, hang on, what can you, how can you say that? What do you know that we don't? And they said, well, what we have is a situation, maybe not militarily. Ukraine has already won the war in as much as Vladimir Putin thought he would be able to turn this into a war of attrition that would be able to outlast any of the Western support for Ukraine. We, we, we always look at the American presidential elections, um, very closely, look at the Republican candidates who may or may not want to support Ukraine like President Biden has in the future um, but by signing this kind of long term multilateral agreements that will almost lock in uh, that Western support as this becomes a sort of a war of attrition on those three axes around Bakhmut, Tokmak and Donetsk. So yeah, the more that Ukraine can secure in locking in long-term support. We don't know the exact dates yet. We just know it's going to be long-term. Some people speak of five years. Uh, The Israeli uh, agreement with the US is renewed every decade. So if we get to that stage where Ukraine is being offered long-lasting commitments, that will stave off some of the fears that Ukraine will eventually be whittled down as um, MP politicians across the world get sick of spending tens of billions of their tax money on supporting a country that is, some, in some cases, not very close to them. So I feel that's a real positive um, to look at. Even though the Ukraine isn't getting NATO membership now, there is actually a, a sort of that, cementing that uh, support will help them in the future.
2: Well, thank you very much, Joe. Thanks so much for calling in from Vilnius. We look forward to hearing your updates tomorrow as well. To end today, can I go to Roland Oliphant?
3: I think there's a good point to be made to you about the difference between kind of ambiguous diplomatic speak and practicalities and diplomacy is a lot often just about semantics there is a way of looking at this to say call something Israeli back security israeli style security guarantees might actually be more practical than in the immediate term than actually some kind of i don't know statement about one day ukraine will join nato and so on and so forth so in practical terms i don't think ukraine is actually coming away from this summit Empty-handed, and the other thing, of course, it look at looking to the long term. Right, you look at the American relationship with Israel. There is no binding commitment for America to go to war for Israel or anything like that. Memorandum, memorandum of Understanding is mostly about money and subsidies for for the military, that kind of thing. But it's underpinned by two things. One of those things is this absolutely solid, remarkable bipartisan consensus about American. About America's alliance with Israel in America, that makes it politically impossible for any president, even if you elected a president who was a little bit leery about it, politically impossible for that to be undermined. And that has taken decades, the Israelis and their sympathizers in the United States, to build that up. Now Ukraine has an element of that. You can see that at the moment. There is bipartisan support in uh, in Congress at the moment, but it's not at that level. And everyone is still looking at the the twenty twenty four election. It, it could get there, but that's that fundamental uh, underpinning that, that keeps that American-Israeli relationship going isn't yet that yet there for Ukraine, which I think is that be one reason why the Ukrainians want something in writing along the lines of uh, NATO um, and Article Five. And the other thing Israel obviously has is a nuclear arsenal. They don't talk about it. They don't admit it. Everyone knows they've got it. The Ukrainians don't have that, um, and that, that's another reason why you'd probably want to be in NATO. Um, but I'm not, I'm not sure I have anything incredibly intelligent to add beyond that, David. Um, but I think it'll be interesting to watch you know, what actually comes out um, from Vilnius tomorrow and what the exact nature of these offers are. And I'm sure you'll hear from the Ukrainians saying, look, we've got more to offer NATO than you have to offer us, actually. And really, it's in your interest to let us in because we have the biggest... Most effective military in Europe. We know more about fighting the Russians than any of you put together. And if you let us in, we are going to take on a great burden of defending NATO's eastern flank that you yourselves are currently having to shoulder.
2: Ukraine the Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis, and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just one pound at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash latest or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. If you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Rachel Porter and Giles Gere. And the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.